Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Alrighty, y'all. Let's keep going with some Dracula. Um, last time we got the big laundry list of vampiric strengths and weaknesses. And this time, um, and I, in that one, by the way, I mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, that there is a Patreon version of this also for three bucks a month, go to patreon.com slash Michael G Williams. I'll put a link in the show notes. Why not? And for three bucks a month, you can get a whole separate feed where I'll read a story or two. Um, we did for a while read Bram Stoker's Lair of the White Worm, and then that became very unpleasant. And so I stopped reading it. <laughs> now, now I've just kind of decided to commit to reading a whole bunch of like 19th century horror and science fiction. So why not? Anyway, let's get back into this Dracula right here that you don't have to pay a thing for. Because that's because I enjoy reading it. I enjoy reading it so much that what I'm getting out of this is getting to read it with you. So, good grief. Mm. Oh, that's some good reading tea. Okay. Dang. Now, this is still Mina Harker's diary. It's still the 30th of September, and Van Helsing is still the person speaking. You can tell the guy's a professor, right? Anyway. Thus, when we find the habitation of this man that was, we can confine him to his coffin and destroy him if we obey what we know. But he is clever. I have asked my friend Arminius of Budapest University to make his record, and from all the means that are, he tell me of what he has been. He must indeed have been that voivode Dracula who won his name against the Turk over the great river on the very frontier of Turkey land. If <laughs> the phrase Turkey land really just made me laugh and I could not contain it. Sorry. Turkey land. It's just, I don't know. It's like a Thanksgiving themed, you know, amusement park. Okay. I'm going to stop. Uh, honestly, I'm going to keep reading now. Hmm. <clears throat> If it be so, then he was no common man, for in that time and for centuries after he was spoken of as the cleverest and the most cunning, as well as the bravest of the sons of the land beyond the forest. That mighty brain and that iron resolution went with him to his grave, and we are even now arrayed against us. The Draculas were, says Arminius, a great and noble race, though now and again were scions who were held by their co-evals to have had dealings with the evil one. They learned his secrets in the Skolomance, amongst the mountains over Lake Hermannstadt, 
where the devil claims the tenth scholar as his due. In the records are such words as stregoica, witch, urdog, and pokal, Satan and hell. And in one manuscript, this very Dracula is spoken of as Wampir, which we all understand too well. There have been from the loins of this very one great men and good women, and their graves make sacred the earth where alone this foulness can dwell. For it is not the least of its terrors that this evil thing is rooted deep in all good, in soil barren of holy memories it cannot rest. Whilst they were talking, Mr. Morris was looking steadily at the window, and he now got up quietly and went out of the room. There was a little pause, and then the professor went on. And now we must settle what we do. We have here much data, and we must proceed to lay out our campaign. We know from the inquiry of Jonathan that from the castle to Whitby came fifty boxes of earth, all of which were delivered at Carfax. We also know that at least some of these boxes have been removed. It seems to me that our first step should be to ascertain whether all the rest remain in the house beyond that wall where we look today, or whether any more have been removed. If the latter, we must trace. Here we were interrupted in a very startling way. Outside the house came the sound of a pistol shot. The glass of the window was shattered with a bullet, which ricocheting from the top of the embrasure struck the far wall of the room. I am afraid I am at heart a coward, for I shrieked out. The men all jumped to their feet. Lord Godalming flew over to the window and threw up the sash. As he did so, we heard Mr. Morris's voice without. Sorry, I fear I have alarmed you, and I shall come in and tell you about it. A minute later, he came in and said, It was an idiotic thing of me to do, and I ask your pardon, Mrs. Harker, most sincerely. I fear I must have frightened you terribly. But the fact is that whilst the professor was talking, there came a big bat and sat on the window sill. I have got such a horror of the damned brutes from recent events that I cannot stand them, and I went out to have a shot, as I have been doing of late of evenings, whenever I have seen one. You used to laugh at me for it then, Art. Did you hit it? said Dr. Van Helsing. I don't know. I fancy not, for it flew away into the wood. Without saying any more, he took his seat, and the professor began to resume his statement. We must trace each of these boxes, and when we are ready, we must either capture or kill this monster in his lair, or we must, so to speak, sterilize the earth, so that no more he can seek safety in it. Thus, in the end, we may find him in his form of man between the hours of noon and sunset, and so engage with him when he is at his most weak. And now for you, Madam Mina, this night is the end until all be well. You are too precious to us to have such risk. When we part tonight, you no more must question. We shall tell you all in good time. We are men and are able to bear, but we, you must be our star and our hope, and we shall act all the more free that you are not in the danger, such as we are. All the men, even Jonathan, seemed relieved, but it did not seem to me good that they should brave danger and perhaps lessen their safety, strength, and, strength being the best safety, through care of me. But their minds were made up, and though it was a bitter pill for me to swallow, I could say nothing, save to accept their chivalrous care of me. Mr. Morris resumed the discussion. As there is no time to lose, I vote we have a look at this house right now. Time is everything with him, and swift action on our part may save another victim. I own that my heart began to fail me when the time for action came so close, but I did not say anything, for I had a greater fear that if I appeared as a drag or a hindrance to their work, they might even leave me out of their counsels altogether. 
They have now gone off to Carfax with means to get into the house. Manlike, they had told me to go to bed and to sleep, as if a woman can sleep when those she loves are in danger. I shall lie down and pretend to sleep, lest Jonathan have added anxiety about me when he returns. Okay, I'm not done with this episode, but I just want to talk a little about that while I'm still thinking about it. Whoa, okay, wow. I gotta say, for Bram Stoker, that's some pretty insightful stuff there about the way the women are asked to do the emotional labor for men and and the fact that it really bothers her that she's being cut out uh, and she knows that if she tells them how much it bothers her, she'll just be cut further out. Wow, I am kind of impressed with that. Okay, anyway, moving on with the rest of the story. Dr. Seward's Diary, 1 October, 4 a.m. Just as we were about to leave the house, an urgent message was brought to me from Renfield to know if I would see him at once, as he had something of the utmost importance to say to me. I told the messenger to say that I would attend to his wishes in the morning. I was busy just at the moment. The attendant added, He seems very importunate, sir. I have never seen him so eager. I don't know, but what if you don't see him soon? He will have one of his violent fits. I knew the man would not have said this without some cause, so I said, All right, I'll go now. And I asked the others to wait a few minutes for me as I had to go and see my patient. Take me with you, friend John, said the professor. His case in your diary interests much, and it had bearing, too, now and again on our case. I should much like to see him, but especially when his mind is disturbed. May I come also? asked Lord Godalming. Me too, said Quincy Morris. May I come, said Harker. I nodded, and we all went down the passage together. We found him in a state of considerable excitement, but far more rational in his speech and manner than I had ever seen him. There was an unusual understanding of himself, which was unlike anything I had ever met with in a lunatic, and he took it for granted that his reasons would prevail with others entirely sane. We all four went into the room, but none of the others at first said anything. His request was that I would at once release him from the asylum and send him home. This he backed up with arguments regarding his complete recovery and deduced his own existing sanity. I appeal to your friends, he said. They will perhaps not mind sitting in judgment on my case. By the way, you have not introduced me. I was so much astonished that the oddness of introducing a madman in an asylum did not strike me at the moment. And besides, there was a certain dignity in the man's manner, so much of the habit of equality, that I at once made the introduction. Lord Godalming, Professor Van Helsing, Mr. Quincy Morris of Texas, Mr. Renfield. He shook hands with each of them, saying in turn, Lord Godalming, I had the honor of seconding your father at the Wyndham. I grieve to know by your holding the title that he is no more. He was a man loved and honored by all who knew him, and in his youth was, I have heard, the inventor of a burnt rum punch, much patronized on Derby Night. Mr. Morris, you should be proud of your great state. Its reception into the Union was a precedent which may have far-reaching effects hereafter, when the Pole and the Tropics may hold alliance to the Stars and Stripes. The power of a treaty may yet prove a vast engine of enlargement, when the Monroe Doctrine takes its true place as a political fable. What shall any man say of his pleasure at meeting Van Helsing? 
Sir, I make no apology for dropping all forms of conventional prefix. When an individual has revolutionized therapeutics by his discovery of the continuous evolution of brain matter, conventional forms are unfitting, since they would seem to limit him to one of a class. You, gentlemen, who by nationality, by heredity, or by the possession of natural gifts are fitted to hold your respective places in the moving world, I take to witness that I am as sane as at least the majority of men who are in full possession of their liberties. And I am sure that you, Dr. Seward, humanitarian and medico-jurist as well as scientist, will deem it a moral duty to deal with me as one to be considered as under exceptional circumstances. He made this last appeal with a courtly air of conviction which was not without its own charm. I think we all, we were all staggered. For my own part, I was under the conviction, despite my knowledge of the man's character and history, that his reason had been restored. And I felt under a strong impulse to tell him that I was satisfied as to his sanity and would see about the, nece the necessary formalities for his release in the morning. I thought it better to wait, however, before making so grave a statement. For of old, I knew the sudden changes to which this particular patient was liable. So I contented myself with making a general statement that he appeared to be improving very rapidly, that I would have a longer chat with him in the morning, and would then see what I could do in the direction of meeting his wishes. This did not at all satisfy him, for he said quickly, But I fear, Dr. Seward, that you hardly apprehend my wish. I desire to go at once, here, now, this very hour, this very moment, if I may. Time presses. And in our implied agreement with the old scythe man, it is of the essence of the contract. I am sure it is only necessary to put before so admirable a practitioner as Dr. Seward so simple yet so momentous a wish to ensure its fulfillment. He looked at me keenly and seeing the negative in my face, turned to the others and scrutinized them closely. Not meeting any sufficient response, he went on, Is it possible that I have erred in my supposition? You have, I said frankly, but at the same time as I felt, brutally. There was a considerable pause, and then he said slowly, Then I suppose I must only shift my ground of request. Let me ask for this concession, boon, privilege, what you will. I am content to implore in such a case, not on personal grounds, but for the sake of others. I am not at liberty to give you the whole of my reasons, but you may, I assure you, take it from me that they are good ones, sound and unselfish, and spring from the highest sense of duty. Could you look, sir, into my heart? You would approve to the full the sentiments which animate me. Nay, more, you would count me amongst the best and truest of your friends. Again he looked at us all keenly. I had a growing conviction that this sudden change of his entire intellectual method was but yet another form or phase of his madness, and so determined to let him go on a little longer, knowing from experience that he would, like all lunatics, give himself away in the end. Van Helsing was gazing at him with a look of utmost intensity, his bushy eyebrows almost meeting with the fixed concentration of his look. He said to Renfield in a tone which did not surprise me at the time, but only when I thought of it afterwards, for it was as of one addressing an equal. Can you not tell frankly your real reason for wishing to be free tonight? I will undertake that if you will satisfy even me, a stranger, without prejudice, and with the habit of keeping an open mind, Dr. Seward will give you, at his own risk and on his own responsibility, the privilege you seek. He shook his head sadly and with a look of poignant regret on his face. The professor went on. 
Come, sir, bethink yourself. You claim the privilege of reason in the highest degree, since you seek to impress us with your complete reasonableness. You do this, whose sanity we have reason to doubt, since you are not yet released from medical treatment for this very defect. If you will not help us in our effort to choose the wisest course, how can we perform the duty which you yourself put upon us? Be wise and help us, and if we can, we shall aid you to achieve your wish. He still shook his head, and he said, Dr. Van Helsing, I have nothing to say. Your argument is complete, and if I were free to speak, I should not hesitate a moment. But I am not my own master in the matter. I can only ask you to trust me. If I am refused, the responsibility does not rest with me. I thought it was now time to end the scene, which was becoming too comically grave. So I went towards the door, simply saying, Come, my friends, we have work to do. Good night. As, however, I got near the door, a new change came over the patient. He moved towards me so quickly that for the moment I feared that he was about to make another homicidal attack. My fears, however, were groundless, for he held up his two hands imploringly and made his petition in a moving manner. As he saw that the very excess of his emotion was militating against him, by restoring us more to our old relations, he became still more dis- demonstrative. I glanced at Van Helsing and saw my conviction reflected in his eyes, so I became a little more fixed in my manner, if not more stern, and motioned to him that his efforts were unavailing. I'd previously seen something of the same constantly growing excitement in him when he had to make some request of which at the time he had thought much, such, for instance, as when he wanted a cat. And I was prepared to see the collapse into the same sullen acquiescence on this occasion. My expectation was not realized, for when he found that his appeal would not be successful, he got into quite a frantic condition. He threw himself on his knees and held up his hands, wringing them in a plaintive supplication, and poured forth the torrent of entreaty, with the tears rolling down his cheeks, and his whole face and form expressive of the deepest emotion. Let me entreat you, Dr. Seward, or let me implore you to let me out of this house at once. Send me away, how you will, and where you will. Send keepers with me, with whips and chains. Let them take me in a straight waistcoat, manacled and leg-ironed, even to a jail. But let me out of this. You don't know what you do by keeping me here. I am speaking from the depths of my heart, of my very soul. You don't know whom you wrong or how, and I may not tell. Woe is me, I may not tell, but all you hold sacred, by all you hold dear, by your love that is lost, by your hope that lives, for the sake of the Almighty, take me out of this and save my soul from guilt. Can't you hear me, man? Can't you understand? Will you never learn? Don't you know that I am sane and earnest now, that I am no lunatic in a mad fit, but a sane man fighting for his soul? Oh, hear me, hear me. Let me go. Let me go. Go! Let me go! I thought that the longer this went on, the wilder he would get, and so would bring on a fit. So I took him by the hand and raised him up. Come, I said sternly, no more of this. We've had quite enough already. Get to your bed and try to behave more discreetly. He suddenly stopped and looked at me intently for several moments. Then without a word, he rose and, moving over, sat down on the side of the bed. The collapse had come, as on former occasion, just as I had expected. When I was leaving the room, last of our party, he said to me in a quiet, well-bred voice, You will, I trust, Dr. Seward, do me the justice to bear in mind, later on, 
and I did what I could to convince you tonight. Whew. What a great place to stop. Jeez. Gosh. That's some pretty wild stuff. Also, I would just like to point out that, of course, it's the American who has a gun and goes around shooting stuff at random because it makes him feel better because he's afraid. <sighs> but man, that Renfield scene. Good golly. Okay. Well, I'm going to leave it there. We'll come back next time for Chapter 19. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.